0: Those are not the grapes of wrath. <laughs> 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 They're kind of in your face, the way the photograph works, aren't they? Now, what are, we, what are we doing with these? What is what is that about? This is the our little sponge activity to get the kids thinking about the Bible with us. A little family Bible time before we send them downstairs for a children's church. What is, what is that image? For those of you who are listening to this message, put a picture, an image on the screen of grapes, pretty grapes, wine grapes, but let's... Let's say they're not going to be used for wine, in this case. And Jerry says, "Why not? (coughs) Because we're talking to the children." (laughs) So, uh, not the future youth director uh, here. (laughs) 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 Now, uh, let's, uh, young people, look look up here real quick. What do you do with grapes? What are we going to do with grapes? Let me ask you this. What if we just leave them there for a little while and let the sun, whose rays are just starting to creep through, what if we let that sunrise just bake those grapes on the vine? What happens? They become raisins. See, the kids know where God's candy is. They, they know. Uh, what, it, what are bees for? Honey. Honey, yeah. They know what all the, where all the sugar sources are. That's correct. And, and um, what do we get from Hawaii sugar come on guys you know that y'all didn't know that part well um some of you are already packing your bags for honolulu bible church if that's where the sugar comes from anyway um, their grapes turn into raisins and why do we make raisins why do we raise we don't make them why do we raise them why do we raise get it raisins nathan why do we have raisins do you like raisins yeah so why do we why do we grow them to eat them do we grow them to just rot and do and do nothing no. now I got a question if you want to grow raisins do you just do nothing or do you plant grape vines you plant grapevines. if you want to grow raisins you have to plant grapevines. do you know how hard it is to get grapes to grow on grape vines it is a lot of work a lot of work to have fruit of the vine come forth with any kind of volume. You actually need a very skilled vintner, a very skilled vine dresser who can come and take care of these little plants. And it's almost a labor of love. I'm sure it is in most cases a labor of love for someone to come along and let these branches, these vines and branches grow do you know what the what the grapes will do they'll lay on the ground and what happens on the ground dirty yucky bacteria we call it all kinds of problems cause rot so what do you have to do with those grape vines as they start to spread out before they start to flower and and fruit and give us what do you have to do before the grapes come you have to do what you have to lift those vines up and put them on things we call trellises you have to get them off the ground do you know what happens to those beautiful grapes and those beautiful grapevines and branches when you get them off the ground? More sunshine. They get more sun. You know what else they get? They get more air. More air. And all these things are how God made them for us to be able to have raisins or grape juice, or fermented grape juice. The point is that there's a lot of work and care that goes in to getting grapes. And do you know, Jesus, do you know that... Okay, go sit down. That's That's how you kiss your kids, okay. So do you know that the grapes are something Jesus used many times to teach the people? He taught with wine at the Last Supper, the ultimate teaching illustration. If you drink my blood, you have life. Did you know that Jesus used the grapevine when he taught us what it is to walk as believers in him in this age? He used the grapevine and said, you need to bear fruit. You need to be like a branch that grows lots and lots of grapes. And do you know what you have to do to have that? You need two things. I want all the young eyes to look at me. And that reminds all the... It's funny when I tell the young people to look at me. Everybody does. Now, what happens is you've got to have a vine dresser. Who's our vine dresser? God the Father. He's the one that makes sure that we're up off the ground, that the sunlight is getting to us, that we're bearing fruit. Did you know that you have to cut the branches to make them grow? It's called what? Pruning. Yeah, making raisins, talking about pruning. What kind of, what's this conversation? You have to cut them. The vine dresser has to come along. Is that a little bit of work or a lot of bit of work? That's a lot of work to make those grapes grow. You can't come back up here, buddy. All of a sudden, I feel like Jeff Dunham. Hi, this is is Nathan. Now, are you going to bear fruit? for the lord jesus well i tell you how you have to do it you have to have god the father as your vine dresser you know what else you have to have he asked me to get baptized this year when his brother elijah did what did jesus do for you what'd he do yes you do what'd he do you're embarrassed well he'll bear witness for you soon enough but he's told me many times he died on the cross for what our sins. Our sins. He knows the deal. So when you want to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to have God the Father pruning you and lifting you up so that you can bear fruit. But you know what else you need? The most important thing is you're just a branch. You're just a branch. You're the part the fruit grows on, but you have to stay connected to the vine. Who's the vine? Who's the vine? The answer to most questions in church is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the true vine. And so if you want to be like a branch that grows the fruit that God wants you to grow, like love, like joy, like peace, like the character of Jesus Christ, do you know what you have to do? You have to stay connected to him. He says, abide in me and I in you. Are you going to stay connected to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you better get serious about the Bible. Uh, We're behind the power curve with you. All right, you need that go back down let me pray for our young people (laughs) father we love you and praise you thank you for eternal life for the, the blessings that you've given us the fruit of the womb you've said is a reward and you've told us to bear much fruit not speaking about having babies in john 15 but about training them to bear fruit pray father for all of these young people Train them. Prune them. Help them stay connected to your son so that they can bear much fruit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, young people are dismissed. to head downstairs. Except you stay here. I'm thrilled to see everybody today. Thanks for sharing that little family Bible time with me. And um, I know you don't mind seeing my little puppets, mini-me, number four. (laughs) We named him Nathan, and that is Hebrew, Nathan, and it is um, uh, the third perfect aorist, active, indicative, wait, not aorist, think Rosalind. It's the third perfect tense, uh, stem um, uh, from, uh, from Natan, and it, in the third person it means he gives, or he has given, it would be the perfective. And uh, that's a reference to God. Nathan the prophet is, we're saying he gives, God gives. And, um, and he's walking, What's your name? God gives, he gives. What'd he give? Me. <laughs> and um, uh, the responsibility upon me and you by the Lord Jesus in John 15 ties right in with what we're doing as raising children, of training them. There's no stronger opportunity we have to make disciples for Jesus Christ and fulfill the commission he gave us than in the training of our children. And if you're not um, in the habit of praying for all the parents of young children, that they would train them, that they would be equipped and wise to train their children to fear the Lord and serve him, that the children be responsive, that's the, probably the most critical ministry project going on in any church anywhere. And if we're not shouldered together, partnered together in this prayer, then we're missing a great opportunity. If you'll turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15, we're learning the core of the New Testament teaching on the Christian spiritual life, Christian spirituality. And I believe John chapter 15 is perhaps the most important place as our anchor point in the Bible to define Christian spirituality. And that's saying a mouthful because I really love to teach Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 6, 9, which is one long discussion of Christian spirituality. I really like to teach... Uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 16, 16 through the end of chapter 3 because it's about the Christian spiritual life. I really appreciate Galatians most of chapter 5 on walk by the Spirit in verse 16 and then the fruit of the Spirit in 22 and 23. But I believe that the core of the New Testament revelation on the spiritual life is I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you're, if you're up on your Holy Spirit walking by the spirit passages but you don't understand this is a project in which god the spirit is causing you to bear the fruit of the character of christ to whom you stay connected and there's a vital piece that's missing in our doctrine of sanctification and so today we're saying christian spirituality is about productivity is my mic going in and out too okay all right so let's dig in a little bit. Some of you know this passage very well. I want to share just a little bit with you today about about wine uh, agriculture. It it is a vine that he's talking about, and that was for them to to produce wine from, and raisins, um, in the first century. And um, the imagery is very beautiful, and there are lots of different opinions about some of the statements in this passage. But there is one consistent thing that you really can't argue with. And I want to challenge you that as you consider what it means to abide in Jesus Christ, as you think about what it means to abide in Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you not to try to redefine that as some other technical term. I think the way you miss the, the power of John 15, 1 through 11 is you try to redefine this and say, oh, he's talking about faith. This is to believe in Christ, so it's about the gospel. Or, oh, he's talking about fellowship, so it's for the believer, and so he's talking about just, having, just being in fellowship. And when you do that, you take away the core defining passage for understanding what fellowship is and what it means to walk as a believer in faith. See, abide in Christ is a sufficiently technical statement. And the question that you and I need to pose to ourselves is, as believers in Jesus Christ, am I doing it? Is this who I am? Is this my watchword? Is the command that Jesus Christ issues defining my life? Am I abiding in Jesus Christ? A series of questions I want to ask as we walk through the verses of this passage. And the first is, who is God to you? Who is God to you? And the answer Jesus gives us in verse 1 of John 15. He says, I am the vine, the true one, and my father is the vine dresser. It's very simple baby Greek. It's very easy, equative Greek. It's like one plus one equals two. It's that kind of sentence. It really is. I am is the way Jesus says several places, especially seven key places in this gospel of John where he identifies himself as divine. He is saying, go back to Exodus 3. I am sent you. And I'll show you that right here. That's why one reason I use the Greek uh, on the screen. I'm making my own translations, but I want you to see ego -me that's this word, E-G-O-E-I- M-I, Ego-A-me. This is a redundant statement. Ego is the pronoun "I." You don't need it because it's embedded in the verb "-me, I am." And so if you literally, woodenly translate it, you would say, "I, I am." because he's making an emphasis about I am and this is I'm not I didn't think of this but grammarians have noticed Bible believing grammarians have noticed that this is a reference to exodus where Jesus where God says I am the burning bush to Moses who will I say send me I am Yahweh I am this is who we're talking about he's not just a good man He's God in the flesh, as you know. I am the vine. And then he emphasizes, after saying what he is, he describes himself, the true vine. I want to just preach a message on the true vine. The true vine. What, why does he say that? It's a really good thing to ask questions of the Bible as you read it. But sometimes we have to slow down to do that. Aren't you already to verse 5? Aren't you reading through the passage? You already... You're not going to listen as I slow it down. Slow it down with me. Think about this. I am the true vine, the true vine. What does that imply about alternative vines? They're the false vine. Now, I believe that when he says vine and branches, he's saying source and output from the source. The the vine is the plant. And then the branch shoots off of the plant, off of the vine. So source and the product. So we're coming from him as our source in a sense, right? I believe that when you start talking about your source, you're talking about your identity, your identity. And this is critical if you want to walk as a believer in the spirit of God if you want to walk by the Spirit, you have to understand your identity. The false vines are myriad. And you can say, yeah, I'm a believer. Yeah, I've got Jesus. But if your identity, if your grounding and your source, if you're not rooted in your thinking about who you are as in Christ, then you're in the false vine. You're dealing with the false source. And it's absurd now we do it there are lots of contenders for in christ for our our identity lots of false vines i even i a pastor have had to work through this from time to time what is on your flag right what what is your identity i went across the world with the american flag on my shoulder and i was thrilled to do it for christ's sake in my thinking Really, I think every, everything you do, you should do is unto the Lord. But what's my identity? That American flag for which we bleed and die is not Christ. So let's figure out the pecking order here. That's the point I'm making. You can make a false vine of anything. I'm the true vine. And my father's the vine dresser. Doesn't that put us on the agenda? Doesn't that help us figure out what this is all about? What is really going on? What is God's program for your production? If you ask the question, because you're, you're, now I'm a functionary, I'm going to grow fruit and uh, I'm going to stay connected to the vine. What is God's program for your production? In verse 2, we get the answer. Every branch in me which does not bear fruit, he lifts it up, and every one that bears fruit, he cleanses it, so that more fruit it bears. Now, I believe that almost if not every English translation Bible that renders that word lift up to be takes away, I think every one of them gets it wrong. That's my opinion, my conviction. If it's not wrong that he says it, I'll still tell you he's not talking about you believers going to the lake of fire. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. Now, the reason I take it that iro means to lift up is two main reasons. The word here, to lift up, right here. Every branch in me which, he does, which, he, which does not bear fruit, he lifts up. I take it to mean lift up instead of cut out or take away for two reasons. First of all, that word usually means to lift up in Greek. It can mean to take away. It can mean to remove. But usually, it means to lift up. The second reason is because he's talking about growing grapes who knows better about how to grow grapes within the creation that he invented and holds together by the word of his power who knows better than jesus how to grow grapes nobody but it turns out the aggies that's the viticulturist at texas a&m have something to say to all of us about how you grow grapes gig them dads can't whoop no, you can. You can, you can whoop. Now, when you grow grapes, you don't cut out branches that are so immature that they haven't grown grapes yet. You don't cut out branches that don't grow, that haven't, that haven't produced fruit. You tend them. You lift them up. And this is well established. I've got a lot to read on, on this. I'm not going to read it to you. But there are a couple of interesting articles that have been done by um, viticulturists about this. When you want to grow grapes, you don't start cutting out new unfruitful branches. There is a pruning that takes place after the fruiting season, after the harvest that you remove the wood garbage uh, stuff that's not going to grow anymore. Once it's done its thing, you do cut out wood. There is a a, a time to to cut out and, and burn up. But if you're trying to get a product of grapes you actually have to tend the young branches. And the way they would tend them, and we have it from Pliny the Elder and from the and papyri about how they did viticulture back then, if you want to do that, you actually have to raise them up. You lift them up for sunlight and air, like we told the little kids. So I don't want to spend a whole lot more time on that, but I think it makes more sense that the vine dresser is actually trying to get the unfruitful to bear fruit because that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about you are going to hell in this upper room discourse where Jesus teaches the 11, Judas is gone. He is going to hell where he teaches the 11, what it is going to be to walk by the spirit in the coming age. And the whole name of the game is productivity. You need to bear fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, there is a great warning. There is a grave loss that he is going to teach. And I want to suggest six implications from verses one and two. First of all, Christian spirituality starts with the Trinity. I'm the branch, I'm the vine, you are the branches, My father's the vine dresser. You've got God the Father and God the Son in the enterprise before we're ever introduced in verse two. Christian spirituality begins with the Trinity second. Each person of the Godhead has a role in your sanctification. Most of what we're going to teach about Christian spirituality is what the Holy Spirit does in you. Most of what we teach will be about the Holy Spirit. Because most of the New Testament passages on this are about the Holy Spirit. But we have to get first things first. The reason the Spirit works as the empowerer is because the Father has an agenda and the Son has a project that He's carrying out. And He uses you. He, he builds this through you. And so the Holy Spirit is always the behind-the-scenes empowerer. But each person of the Godhead has a role. Jesus, who is God the Son, is our organic connection to experiencing eternal life and fruitfulness. You can't have Christian production. You cannot have the bearing of fruit without an abiding committed, willing connection to Jesus Christ. And it is all those things because Jesus commands it. Fourth, God the Father is the superintending guardian and developer. That's the Georgos. That's the the vine dresser or the farmer. Where we get the name George. That's what he's called in verse 1, the Georgos. Uh, The developer of our experience of eternal life and fruitfulness. So he's the one who is really in charge The vine isn't in charge in this metaphor. The vine isn't in charge. The the vine dresser is directing and arranging the vine. And the branches are the part that bear fruit. And the vine dresser isn't the vine. He doesn't have the organic connection, if you will, that brings forth the fruit. We don't want to push this illustration too far. But just see, everyone has a role. And you can see the vine dresser is calling the shots. And this idea of a personal being dealing with these impersonal plants the way the metaphor works fifth the son responds to the father's skillful direction the son this is a major theme throughout the gospel of john i say the words i heard from my father i have testifying to you of my father heavenly father i have given them the words that you gave me to give to them now give me them so that i can glorify with you some more glorify you with them some more So the son is always responding to the father's skillful direction. The vine dresser is tending the vine's branches. And that's the picture that he has and the relationship he has with his father. Do you think Jesus likes the vintage? Do you think he likes the project that his father is superintending? Do you think that's a relational thing? Do you think the father looks at his vine and the branches and the fruit that are being produced and and appreciates what he's doing? Do you think he takes pride in his craftsmanship? I once heard a famous Hollywood celebrity who's kind of retired from from films and entered into Pinot Grigio Vintner, uh, viticulture, where he's he he, gra- he raises Pinot. Um, grapes which are very temperamental I guess and hard to raise you have to spend all kinds of time on them and sing to them and stuff and whatever you, you, there's I mean you have to regulate their temperature if there's a a, a dry spell you have to do irrigation not too much uh, you have to they're just very temperamental and so there's a lot of of hands-on uh, labor that you have to do with these things and I heard this celebrity say um, it's it's something that just completely consumes you. I just love it so much. I love what I do, and I love seeing the bottle of the product that has been produced from my vintage. Do you think God the Father loves what he gets out of us when he is able to prune us and tend us so that we, the branches, staying connected to the vine, are able to bear fruit? Do Do you see this is not about us? This is about God getting his way through us for eternity, and it's beautiful when you consider the personal connection that we have to the Father and the Son. Number six, and last, the summary of verses one and two is not about potential removal, but about God helping us be fruitful. He's not starting off telling you you're going to hell, for sure. Now, the other interpretation that, that is possible is, is that you are uh, removed for not being fruitful Um, later on after the harvest and so um, uh, like being removed through person through the sin unto death and, and divine discipline as a believer and that's possible but I don't think that's what he's saying yet I think he says that in verse six so next question I wanted to ask was what is your standing with Christ what is your standing with Christ are you like these disciples are you like the disciples do you have what they have what do you have that the disciples had The question helps. Think about it. What do you have that the disciples of Jesus Christ had? If you have his word and you believe in him as the word from the father, your savior, then you're clean because of the word that he gave you. That's verse three. You are already cleansed through the word which I've spoken to you. Now I would point out there's a play on words that's happening through this passage. And I've, told, I've taught this through before, so we're, we're kind of doing a different method here but uh, of teaching, I mean. But this word here, kothar, kotharoy, okay? Kothiro is the word, and iro is the word for lift up, and kothiro is the word for prune or clean. And now he says, you're already clean. And so he's using this word group throughout the discussion. And, uh, and this is a reference back to what he told the Peter when he said, I'm going to wash your feet, verse uh, chapter 13, same, same discussion, same, same event, same teaching event, he just said it, it's still in their ears, he washes their feet, Jesus, do you, do you wash my feet, and he says, eventually, Peter says, okay, if it has to be this way, then wash all of me, wash my head and my hands, and Jesus says, no, you're already what? Clean, you have bathed, are already clean, and it's through the word I gave you, he says, but not all of you, because he's talking about Judas, who's about to exit. He's about to vamoose at the end of chapter 13. So Joe, Judas, and it says he's not talking about Judas. He's an unbeliever. These are believers. That's the question of salvation, as we call it, or, or whether someone's a believer. But you're already clean through the word which I've spoken to you. You're believers. What is your standing with Christ? You're not going to bear fruit at all if you don't have Christ as your savior. This is, that's the beginning of the discussion. I think it's the beginning of shooting off of the vine so that you become a branch that's going to bear fruit. You become, you become one of these baby little sucker branches that shoots a shoot, a baby that shoots off the vine. And so you're getting started, and that's being a vine in him. But here's the question. The way John uses in Christ mostly is, are you staying connected willfully? Are you walking with him in fellowship? Are you abiding in Christ? Chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 4 is going to answer the question, what is Jesus' expectation of you? What does he expect of you? Yeah. He expects you to cash the check for a billion dollars that he's writing you right here. He expects you to take him up on his offer of intra-Trinitarian fellowship. See, fellowship is not something we just throw around and say, well, if I confess my sins, then I'm in fellowship. That's not the way the Bible presents it. You should be confessing your sins for the filling of the Spirit because you want the Spirit to have His way, cause, so that you're not being arrogant anymore, you're submitting to God, so that God has His way, so that you are being filled by the Spirit, so you do walk in fellowship. But, but to say, well, I, I, just, I confess, so now I'm in fellowship. That's not what the Bible teaches about this. That's not how it's presented. What's presented is from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally coexisted as one God in three persons with perfect rapport, perfect joy, perfect bliss, perfect fellowship, perfect partaking together of the righteousness that is inherent to the the Godhead three. And that eternal dance of fellowship has been opened. That's chapter 14, has been opened to you you are introduced into the club that has been a very exclusive matter. And the only way God can do it is if you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. This is not for unbelievers. This is for believers. But it's a beautiful invitation. What is Jesus' expectation of you? He throws you an imperative verb. Abide. Meno, M-E-N-O is the Greek. M-E-N-O has nothing to do with fishing. That's M-I-N-N-O-W. Now, I know I say minnow and minnow, and it sounds the same because I'm Texas. But mano is this verb, and minnow is the fish. So, so this word means to stay put. It means to live somewhere, to reside somewhere. It's a very static way of saying remain in place. If you were to stay in your seat, that would be minnow. And if you get up, that would be not minnow. That's what it means. It's, it's very... No, yeah, I, I, I thought that might happen, though I'm not a prophet. You stay put in Christ. You stay connected. You stay aware. You, now, this is where the illustration breaks down. Isn't it right here at the command? Do you have to command branches to stay connected to vines? That's not how it works. The branch isn't a personal being, but you are. And you, this is not some sort of deterministic philosophical construct where God, by commanding it, secures it. He commands it, and you now have a responsibility to stay connected. This is one of the great insights. This is one of the great insights that got Schaefer kicked out of the guild. Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary, got kicked out of the guild because he said, and he that is spiritual in 1918, he said in this little book that there is a partnership, a synergistic work between the father, uh, between God and the believer in the spiritual life. Like right here where Jesus issues the command and then we issue the obedience. We do what he says. And specifically to stay connected to him in a personal fellowship sense abide in me and I in you. Now he doesn't have to command himself. He says, that's the deal. You stay connected to me and I will stay connected to you. There's kind of an if then there in that, in that clause, abide in me and I in you. That is his expectation. Now I've painted it as a billion dollar check that most people don't cash. I hope you understand it is the privilege of privileges. There is no fame, there is no wealth, there is no riches that can compare to the invitation of the Son of God into the fellowship that obtains between him and his Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. There's nothing, there's nothing greater than stay connected to me. And he's going to tell you how. But don't change the meaning of meno from something besides an intentional, willing connectedness, a dependent connectedness to Jesus Christ. I think he's really good when he says abide, stay, don't drift, don't wander, don't embrace lesser gods and make them idols when I want you to stay connected to me. Don't embrace the false vine, stay connected to me. But this passage is about production. So in verse 4, we answer the question, how can a believer produce how will i get fruit how can i have this result the answer jesus provides us when he says i am the vine figure out who i am figure out who you are don't be floating around disconnected from me that's an absurdity your identity is me your genetics spiritually come from me i'm the i'm the plant and you've grown off of me so stay connected as we break the metaphor, you, the personal being that you are, created in my image, you stay intentionally connected. Yes, there's trust in this. Yes, there's dependency. There's also attention. There's concentration. There's discipline. There's abstinence from things that would break this connection. I saw a breaking of a connection like this in a dramatic way in, um, in March of 2017. We got home. I believe it was from the, my dad's home going and the funeral and so forth. We got home and they had, y'all had still been having uh, blizzards up here, you know, almost into February. We get back in February from a long sojourn in, in Texas. There was thunder snow. It, it stormed and lightninged snow. That is awesome. I mean, that is, Texas didn't have that we are we got some powerful things there is a giant tree in my backyard that if it fell toward the house it would hit the house and then the, probably the neighbor's house I mean it is huge it's it's like this big around and uh, I'm not exaggerating there are four or five trees that have grown out of the top of it 30 or 40 feet up that are this big growing out of the top of this thing and guess what we were going to do with it five little boys yeah we were before thundersnow going to build a tree house with this thing weren't we yeah. No more. Nay, nay. <laughs> the Lord took his divine lightning machete and he chopped that tree off. Bam, right there where you would hit a limb with the machete to knock it off a tree if you're limbing a tree. He hit it perfectly with a giant bolt of lightning. I know because when we got home, I saw the evidence. I did a little CSI of my backyard. There was a tree laying at the foot of this tree a smaller tree, and there was a big black hole where God had macheted off with lightning this giant tree. One shot. I think he did it with one shot. I wouldn't have been able to do it with one shot. <laughs> Bam. I mean, what kind of lightning strike was that? I wish I could have seen it. That would have been awesome and frightening and probably uh, devastating uh, to, to your vision. But, but anyway, one strike of lightning knocks this thing clear off and it falls straight down and there's char marks, machete marks there, and there's char marks on where it was, and it's perfect that God did this. I mean, it looks like a gigantic, like a giant's version of what I do when I chop a, a limb off with a machete. It was awesome. No more treehouse than that tree. That tree's gonna die. <laughs> That's a dramatic image of not abiding, okay? That thing got disconnected. Now, had it stayed, that thing would have kept growing, it would have kept growing and been a beautiful, it was a beautiful tree, and now it's a deformed tree that will eventually die, as one of my dear friends has shared with me, uh, looking at it as a tree man. But that tree is done, and, um, and somebody with a much bigger chainsaw than me is going to have to address that sometime in the distant future, hopefully. So um, <laughs> this is a beautiful image, though, of what you and I do when we disconnect ourselves by our inattention, by our lack of concentration, by our disengaging from the risen Christ. And we do it. We drift. What's that old hymn? Uh, uh, the, the I can't think of it. Anyway, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, this one bears much fruit. Prone to wonder, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know the, that 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 come thou found of every blessing. Yeah, that 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 line. Prone to wander, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what we mean when you're you're like, well, um, I've got big decisions to make. Jesus doesn't enter your decisions. I'm gonna, I've got some free time, free money, free whatever. Jesus never enters into the thought process of how do I relate this to my life. I am uh, going to pursue uh, the opposite sex for romance and and riches for marriage. Never think about Jesus Christ. we got to do something with our kids. Jesus doesn't enter, enter into it. It's the secular worldview that Jesus is militating against when he says stay connected. I'm the vine, you're the branches. This is how you produce. He who abides in me and I in him, this one bears much fruit. Doesn't that make sense? If you've got a good plant and you stay connected as a good branch off of that good plant because you're part of the plant, doesn't it make sense that you're going to have the best grapes? I mean, don't you want to see the works that Jesus Christ brings forth through you? Don't you want to see the production? It's awesome. I I look at some of the work I've done, and maybe this has happened to you. You've looked back over your life, some of the decisions or some of the things you've done or built and said, I know so much more now, and that was rough. Oh, that's rough. I don't want to think about it. This is how I started feeling in my 30s about uh, when I was in my 20s, (laughs) being a young man. It's that older man shame of young man time that makes uh, field grade officers so rough on (laughs) lieutenants. (laughs) Because you'd look back and you're, oh, we're just so rough. But this is the beautiful part. You don't have to cause the fruit to grow. You don't have to quality control it. This will grow on you, but you've got to stay connected. You will bear fruit. This one bears much fruit, And then the strong challenge, because apart from me, if you're like that branch that got knocked off, if you disconnect, you can do nothing. Now, we're right to say that the believer walking by the Spirit, having fellowship with God, partaking of the Word of God consistently, where it's informing our choices, it's giving us our joy, it's stabilizing our thinking, where we're really walking by the Spirit and therefore bringing forth the character of Christ, or He's bringing it forth in us. When we're in that having fellowship mode that the church in in America doesn't really know about very much because it's either emotionalism or... Or, or Sunday only nod to Godism, but it's not an abiding consistent momentous walk with Christ when you have this you understand yeah this is where I'm productive this is where I'm capable this is where I don't get in the way of my own tongue when it's time to share Christ because the Holy Spirit enables me to share Christ. Or my fear of being rejected doesn't stop me from telling someone about my Savior. Or where I am so much more on mission than worried about social consequences that the mission dominates and I'm willing to step out in faith with Christ and tell someone, here's my concern, here's what I observe, here's my love for you. And we put it out there, and they can reject it, but we're walking by the Spirit, and we're capable. And we're like the Apostle Peter in that sense. He equips us to do what he wants us to do. When Peter is empowered by the Spirit in Acts 2, he can preach Christ, and he's not afraid of dying. He'll be in prison, but the angel springs him out of jail. He goes and preaches Christ again. And we thought we told you to stop preaching Christ in the temple. We, you did. But you preached Christ in the temple. I did. Well, can you explain yourself? It's more important that we obey God than men. Well, we're going to have to go talk about that. <laughs> you know, the boldness that comes that, hey, are we leading people to Christ? Are we setting the tone? Are we setting the agenda? I mean, Christ in us? Or are we responding and submitting to the broken culture? Oh, well, you know, the people in Rhode Island, they don't like that the kids got a permission slip in the mail or in their, in their, in their home-going stuff, they didn't, they didn't like that parents saw a permission slip from the school from this other agency that said, we would like to share uh, the gospel with your children if you want to trust us with them in the schoolhouse in the afternoon on Tuesday. We don't like that. Okay, why not? Well, I don't have to give you an answer. See, we don't ever ask the question, well, why not? What's the problem? What, what don't you like about it? That we love them? that will help them, that will give them uh, the good thing that has given us this blessing of prosperity and, and, uh, and, uh, and wealth and freedom in these United States built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's have the conversation. It may be a fight. You've got to keep your cool. That's walking by the Spirit. You have to be patient and long-suffering, but you certainly want to be bold. I believe with all my heart what Jesus says, I hope you do too, here in verse five, that without him, I can do nothing. Without him, I can do nothing. So I stay connected, and then I can do whatever it is he wants me to do. So let's ask the question, what happens if I abide in Christ? What happens if I abide in Christ? In verse six, if anyone does not... I'm sorry, what happens if I fail to abide? Verse seven is what if I do abide. What if I fail to abide? What if I don't, as a believer, stay connected to my Savior and walk in fellowship with Him? Well, welcome to the rank and file of Christendom in your culture, and probably every culture since the beginning of the church age. What we're talking about here is radical. It is not practiced. Christianity has been not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and never tried. It's This puts you in a small minority if you do this. But if you'll do this, you'll receive uh, the reward of bearing fruit. But if you won't, you'll be thrown out like a branch. It's withered, they gather them together, and in the fire they throw them. And that is not the lake of fire. Most of the time, fire is not talking about the lake of fire in the New Testament. Usually it's talking about judgment in some kind. And the place where you find failure to perform in the spiritual life you've been given with flames very explicitly is in first corinthians chapter three where the wood hay and stubble are burned up and you could say but that's not you as a vine being burned up or there's no burning of you that's the burning of your works and some have said well that's in this verse and i don't think it is i think he's just talking about the vines they get burned up and like 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 you would think you would do a vine you get all the 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 scrap stuff and you go burn it like plenty the Elder said but here's the thing. In 1 Corinthians 3, when, Jesus says, or when, when Paul says, on behalf of Jesus, he says that, um, that that which is wood, hay, and stubble, the wasted works, the, the bad works, the dead works, when those are gathered up and burned in what's been called the bonfire of the vanities at the judgment seat of Christ, you're saved. Your works are burned up, but you're saved. But what does he say? Though as through fire and i call it operation sins eyebrows that flame is going to somehow affect you i don't know how but so what we're saying is in verse six don't miss the challenge here when when reformed people say this means now not all reformed theologians take this but i haven't found one that doesn't when a reformed theologian or a lordship salvation person takes this to mean Believe in Jesus as your savior and the people that are burned up in this verse, the branches that are gathered together and thrown out as trash. When they say this means the lake of fire, they take any, they they take one of of two really important things away. Either this is no longer a challenge to me and I'm not under the, the threat of this. It's a challenge that I think you and I need to be fearful of. We should be very fearful that our life is insignificant, doesn't measure up to what it was called to do, and wasted. This is a wasted life. But it takes away the threat because, hey, if you're a believer, you're a believer. Or it does something that Reformed people won't even do, and it is to say that you can have salvation, you grow out of the vine, but you lose it, and he cuts you off. Contrary to what Jesus teaches in John chapter 10, nothing takes them out of my hand. So you either have to contradict eternal security or say that this is not applying to you if you're a believer. And so how many believers do you know that are benefiting from the challenge of stay connected or there is waste and loss and judgment? I think this applies to you and me very much and only to us if we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Every vine in me. You're a part of the, every branch in me. I think you're part of this This plant. In fact, I'm, I'm challenging you to see that you're part of this plant. It is burned up. So don't let, the, don't let the challenge dissuade you. Now, if you think that this means you lose your salvation for lack of performance, that's a whole other conversation that I think we should have and go to the book of Romans. And talk about how exactly your works relate to your salvation. What does Paul do in Ephesians 2? And and how do you square these things? And the only way to do that is to redefine Paul's words to mean something that he doesn't say. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. See, it's phase one, phase two. It's By grace through faith, unto works. By grace through faith, you're saved unto works. And so this is the believer that fails to work. What happens if we succeed? What happens if we do abide in Christ? What is the consequence in verse 7? If you abide in me, and my words in you abide, uh uh-oh, my words, my rhema, my words Oh, pastor, you're going to tell us that we need to read our Bibles and pray to have a spiritual life. I hope you see what he's saying. If you abide in me, and I think he means, which is to say my words are abiding in you and you're holding fast. Maybe you need to reread this and read through and read through and, and fill yourself or let the spirit of God fill you with the word by your saturation. My words and you abide then whatever you want, request it. It'll be done for you. In verse 7 is the word of God and prayer. (laughs) That's the life. Because this is not talking about simply you producing. It's talking about you relating to God so that it has its result. Producing cause, effect. Cause, relationship, effect, fruit. Cause is the relationship. Effect is the fruit. And so abiding in him and having his word abide in you I don't think you abide in Christ without His Word. I don't think you abide in His Word, or you're 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 benefiting the Word without the personal, intentional connection that I want to abide, stay connected, dependent upon my Savior. Whatever you want, request it, and it'll be done for you. What do we call it when we talk to God and ask Him for stuff? There's a word for that: Prayer. prayer. So we've got the Word and prayer. Now, why are those two things together in this verse? Because it's a personal relationship. And what do we have to have for a true personal relationship? It's like I I I fed you the notes. That's right, communication. You got to have communication for there to be a relationship. Some of your relationships are broken because of this precisely this issue. There is no relationship because there's no communication. So how can we have a relationship if we don't communicate? Well, I don't want a relationship. Is the truth in Tragically, too many cases, and we can go to the Bible and say, Well, do you want a relationship with Christ? Because He wants you to care for people. But if the relationship requires communication, then you have God talking to you, My words abide in you, and you talking to God, ask whatever you want. It's a communication. And it's the paradigm that Jesus establishes here that you see throughout the New Testament. It isn't generally God talking to the apostles, even though He did at times talk to them. Generally, it's the Word in the apostles' writing, and the prayer that he challenges them to pray, and the word that he's going to preach, and the prayer that they're going to offer for his support. And so I think this is very, very important in terms of a paradigm. This is how the communication is being set up. In other words. If you want to communicate with Christ and you want him to communicate with you, you and I won't decide how that happens. We don't say, well, I have an inner leaning or something and that's what I want Christianity to be. We'll let God decide it. He says, my words need to abide in you. So we'll be in the word. How often? All the time. Do you say, are you saying you have to be in the word every day? I am saying that. I'm saying that the way God made you, you shut down and start over. That's how we're made. If you don't shut down and start over every 24 hours, you go crazy and die. That's what happens. If you don't shut down and start over, that's called sleep. You don't get the reset. And when there's the reset, there needs to be the relationship. Don't spend time in uh, many days without talking to your family. If you're on a trip, call them. There needs to be the continual refreshment of the relationship. Well, if that's true, then how much more do we need to constantly refresh our relationship with our Savior? So you can see why I picked this as the core passage for Christian spirituality. Right here, we've got an intentional, radical connection to Christ through the intake of His Word on a consistent basis and a regular, habitual prayer for His fruit to be born. Jesus is constantly teaching them to ask the Father to send workers, ask for a harvest. Paul says, ask for the door to be open to ministry. This is about the fruit. How do you bear fruit? You get in prayer as you abide in Christ. If you succeed abiding in Christ, then you can expect your prayers to be answered. Five implications. First, the believer who fails to abide is not fruitful. He is a waste of opportunities and resources. To borrow something my brother Todd uh, shared with us today. If we fail to abide, we're a waste of resources and opportunities that God has presented to us. Secondly, the challenge here applies directly to every believer. Don't shirk this. This is to you. I have a friend that says, no, this is just to the 12 or to the 11. It's just Jesus talking to disciples. That's that's bad, bad exegesis. That misses the whole point of the discourse that John is writing for our benefit. There's something very important at stake for you, so don't dodge it. You don't want to suffer the burning judgment that he's describing, and it is not the lake of fire. Third, Jesus isn't talking about our standing in him. That's your new birth and position in Christ. But the state of our relationship, are you walking? Are you enjoying eternal life? When you first believed in Jesus Christ, you received eternal life imparted to you from God. It's called the new birth, and you received new life. But the question is, believer, are you living it? Are you living that new life? Fourth, fourth. This abiding in Christ, which is having fellowship with God through the word, is the basis for successful Christian performance. It is the baseline. Have you heard this taught very much outside of this kind of teaching church? They don't teach it because you have to actually spend time on it. And it's, it's easy to read just, just read through John 15 and not, not grasp what he's doing. He's saying there's a personal relationship that has to stay refreshed and vivified if you're going to actually live Your eternal life that you have right now. This is the basis for successful Christian performance. And fifth, the foremost work of Jesus' assessment is prayer. The foremost work that He has for you, the foremost fruit that you're going to bear, the first time He talks about the actual fruit is your prayer that gets answered. And if you're abiding in Christ and His words are abiding in you, your prayers are then characterized by what Jesus is interested in. And if you ask the question of the Bible, And you open your heart to what he would tell you, what God would tell you through the Bible. What are your interests? What is your dominant interest? Do you know what you find he tells you? It isn't your spiritual growth. It isn't your uh, temporal and eternal blessing, although that's part of it. It's not the things that we think are the things. Do you know what he's concerned about? People. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He loves those who bear his image and he's not willing that any should perish. And this is the type of prayer that you find the New Testament directing us toward. Not about our, oh God, help me moments, although we do call out to him and we need to, for sure. But the prayers that we're talking about that bear fruit are on his mission. It's branded, we're Christians. We have to see it this way. Is this empowerment about us You know that I think the answer is no, but I want to show you why. Is the empowerment that we receive to have our prayers answered that are within his purview, within his interests, because his word abides in us, is this about us? Verse 8, in this he is glorified, my father. In this he, my father, is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and and that you become my disciples. That you not prove to be. It says become, genomai, to be or become. Either that you are my disciples, you become my disciples. Just don't make this mean something it doesn't say. That you become my disciples. He's glorified by this. Now the disciples are hearing Jesus. He's going to be crucified the next morning or the next day. And he's going to be raised on the third day, uh, two days later. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He's going to raise on, the, on, never says after the third day. It says on the third day like 12 times in the New Testament. If it was a Sunday resurrection, then, it's, then, then he's raised on the third day. And, we, and it was. So if Jesus is raised on the third day, what are the disciples supposed to do? He told them, go, before, go to Galilee, and I'll meet you there. I'll go before you, and, um, and, and I have more to teach you. And they didn't because they're afraid. And you know the story of the Resurrection Sunday is a big fail on the disciples not believing what Jesus had said. See, they're not quite there yet. Peter still has to be restored at that point because he's denied Christ three times. They're not discipled up, even though they're the disciples, even though they're going to soon receive the Great Commission. And I contend they really aren't where they're going to be, where we are called to be, because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet, because he hasn't yet been glor- the Son hasn't been glorified. But this is what glorifies God the Father, that you bear much fruit, that you become my disciples. What has prompted Jesus to extend this fellowship and empowerment? What prompted him to do this? We're almost done. For those of you counting, we're going to number 11. What prompted Jesus to do this? Just as he has loved me, my father, just as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Command, abide in my love. This is all about personal relationship depending on consistent communication personal relationship, depending on consistent communication, and it's delegated. The father, uh, we have in 1 Corinthians 11, that the father is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the wife. The headship principle is coming through here. What does the head do? He passes down his ethics, his commitments, his mission. So the father loves the son, and the son abides in the father's love. And he sends the son to project that love to us, and then we abide in the son's love. And so it's this, again, this love Picture is the intra-Trinitarian fellowship that we're talking about. Love is fellowship because we're enjoying the righteousness, the justice, the supreme glories, and the character and the virtues of Christ together with Christ and admiring them in Him. Just as I've loved you, abide in my love. So this passing down of this relationship from the Father uh, to us, it's a no-brainer. If I could be a little vulgar on Sunday morning. A no-brainer to go for this. This is life. If you, if you can get hold of this, let go of everything else. This is discipling up. This is, being, this is doing what, it, what life is about. Todd talked about making the most of your, of your resources in time and money. And we've got a, we've got a, a financial strategy to invest. He, he could show you how to invest in a way that consistently does much better, uh, consistently and much safer than pretty much anything I've ever seen. And I, but I haven't seen much. But, but it's, I'm very impressed by the method that he studied up and developed and is, has offered to show us if you're interested. Well, this is what we're talking about here, though, in that vein, is an eternal investment of yourself and all that you are in eternal dividends. This is something to really hang on to that the Father, the Creator, of the universe has invited you to stay connected to Him. How does obedience relate to fellowship? Isn't that a great theological question? Uh, y'all already know. If you're learning stuff today, I hope, and, and maybe it's a refresher, but um, how do you break fellowship with God's personal sin? And what is that? What is personal sin? Well, if you have theological categories and not a lot of Bible, you might say, well, sin is what you do that disobeys when God says not to do something. He said, don't eat from the tree, and you ate from the tree, so you transgress, so that's a sin. But I think sin is a bigger category than when God says, don't gossip, and you gossip, or when God says, don't murder, and you murder. I know that those are sins, but I think sin extends beyond that to when we disobey God. When you disobey God, when God in his righteousness says, this is the way, righteousness and sovereignty combine and say, do this. And then we in arrogance and wickedness say no to God. Now, Adam and the woman said no by eating the tree. We say no by not loving as we've been commanded. The difference between a sin of omission and commission, when you talk about the righteousness of God and transgressing it, I don't really think there's a difference. In fact, I think that what you and I think of as sins I think we should expand that category and we should be really keeping short accounts because we're omissive. All of us are. We don't abide as we've been commanded. Is that a sin? Well, he told you to do it. If you don't obey the Lord Jesus Christ, are you arrogant? Let's start with that. How does obedience relate to fellowship? If you keep my commandments, then you abide in my love. You will abide in my love. Just as I, I the commandments of my Father, have kept, and I abide in His love. See that verses um, 9 and 10 go together about the relationship. Love and obedience are hand in hand, and especially when it comes to the command to love. If I don't love you, sit still. We're almost there. We really are. If I don't love you, then I'm not obeying Jesus Christ. If I'm not obeying Christ, I'm not loving Him. If I love Him, then I'm going to obey Him and that I'm going to love you. Personal relationship has this result. Now, I'm giving you my favorite example of fruit. Jesus mentioned prayer. I think that's the most important way you love me, you love anyone, is you pray for them. The most important way you love someone, seek their best, ask God on their behalf, is to pray for them. Now, love is the first fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians, or Galatians 5.22, Love. It's the beginning of the fruit of the Spirit. And here, keep my commandments. Love one another. Abide in my love. That's to stay connected and to stay obedient. Can you abide in Christ and disobey him? You can't. Does that break fellowship with God? It does. Is the writer, John, telling us what to do about that in 1 John chapter 1? Yeah. When you break fellowship, it makes you dirty, and he needs to clean you up again and that 's first John one nine and we 're not wrong for emphasizing it, but we need to understand what 's actually going on. Obedience is central to the christian spiritual life because it is the way you move forward in every action of love for your savior it 's a personal relationship. Last question I think. <clears throat> How can a believer experience joy? How can you experience joy as a believer? Besides me saying we're dismissed. I know we've gone long. It's a special Sunday. (laughs) How can you enjoy, how can you, you, you receive joy? These things I've spoken to you. What did he do? He spoke to you. He gave you his word so that the joy, my joy, and you will abide. He's not just giving love, he's giving joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. See, he could go on down the line of of his character, long-suffering, all right? My joy in you will abide, and your joy will be made full. What do I want for you as a believer? As your pastor... Do you you understand? I'm taking a cue from the Lord Jesus, the Great Shepherd. I want you to have joy. I want you to have the joy of the Holy Spirit that so characterizes your life that despite the turmoil and the hardship and the sufferings and the disconnections and the disruptions and the hardships and the cancers and all the things that we have to deal with, why have we got to deal with this? I don't know. Trust the Lord. Through all the things that you would have the joy that the Lord Jesus experienced so that he could look at the joy before him and endure the cross. So that you would enjoy him. So that you would enjoy your life. Everybody who loves people wants to make them happy. But as we saw yesterday with Pastor Todd, happiness is based on circumstances, the way that word comes from. That you're in good times or bad times. This isn't all the time work of the Spirit of God. And it's just one of the aspects of fellowship with Him. But see, if you're not conscious of Christ, if you're not conscious of your spiritual life, if you're not conscious of the walk, if you're not conscious of the Word, if you're so committed, devoted, focused on your entertainment, diversions, culture, family, friends, or problems, all the idols of life, I'm trying to cover all of them, all the diversions and entertainments, all the things that, that take us out of our Difficulties, and we're so focused on these things, you'll never have the joy that God wants to give you. And that's a great place to end. The conviction that I would bring to you today is: this is such a wonderful thing, and you've you got it, you have it; it's your birthright. Embrace it, stay connected. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, the only sacrifice for our sins, the only source of your grace the only hope of our lives and the only real joy for any of us. And now, Father, we pray for our loved ones, for those who may hear this message and not know Jesus Christ, for uh, anyone in our, in our community. Father, for the entire uh, entirety of Preston, we pray for the gospel to go forward. You're the Lord of the harvest. It's your harvest. You're the vine dresser. Father, we ask that you'd bring some new shoots off the vine. Let us be part of that process. Let that be some of our fruit, that we would share Christ. It's our prayer in his name as we abide in him that you would do so. In Christ's name we pray, amen.